Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Darren Gall, who is a uh, wine expert, wine salesman, wine maker and a wine writer. Darren, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. It's uh, lovely to be here. Let's get a broad overview of uh, wines in Southeast Asia. It's uh, The industry has changed a lot over the years, uh, over the decades. I, I think we were chatting earlier and I can remember the days when uh, Australian wines were considered, um, yeah, and then that changed dramatically in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Is it possible that Southeast Asian wines could uh, become commonplace on Western dinner tables? Uh, I, look, it's not outside of the realms of possibility, and I can you know, go back in time, in my time in the industry, and uh, I can remember, for example, in Australia, where really the only time you drank Italian wine was when you went to an Italian restaurant, and quite often it might not be that good, and it was cheap, and... Right. And uh, and now it's it's commonplace to drink consider Italian wines amongst any wines that you purchase. So, um, outside of the the, the locale of a, of a restaurant. So, um, you know, I think at the start you might find you know for example Chinese wine in a Chinese restaurant and maybe Thai wine in a Thai restaurant, and then uh, spreading around the world. And then it'll go beyond that and become a much more common kind of beverage. Where are the main wine producing regions in uh, Southeast Asia? Well. There's um, a lot of wine being made in mainland China, of course, and uh, they've been doing it for some time. Um, I remember judging in a wine show there in the 19, in, in the late 1990s with some fellow winemakers from around the world, and um, it was uh, a very small cluster of wines. From memory, it was about sort of half a dozen white wines and yeah. about 30 red wines. Were they any good? Well, we struggled to get them in the medals. We had to go back and try them a couple of times to mm. get a few medals up there. And when we were interviewed by the CCCTV later, it was all conversations about promise and, and the future and... The outlook. Evolution. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, they've really, certainly, they're making some fantastic wine in China now. And there's, you know, large levels of investment. They bring in a lot of expertise. You know, you throw enough money at something and, and bring in the right people, then you, you get it right eventually. And, you know, the, there's there's now very expensive and very good wines being made in China. Uh, Japan's making really good wines, really interesting wines. I I, mm. I, I judged in the Japan International Wine Challenge uh, a couple of years ago before COVID and was really excited by the Japanese wines that I tried. A lot of indigenous varieties, sort of mm. local varieties that are not what you would call mainstream commercial wine varieties, but really interesting wines, you know, quite elegant, good acidity, good balance. I just thought they were charming wines, but quite expensive and mostly domestically sold. What part of the market are they aiming for? I mean, wine's notorious for being lower-end, quaffable, expensive, um, and I'm not an expert. I need to stress that point. (laughs) Well, no, I think you're right. There tends to be kind of two types of wine market, if you like, in that there's the commodity wine that people would just um, have a small suite of brands in memory. They buy on price and they're just drinking wine regularly with friends, barbecues, with their meal at night time. And then there's the more kind of higher involved collector, investor, um, or, or fine wine connoisseur. And um, that's much more about traditional wine markets, track records, things like that. Where the new producers in Asia are aiming, I think a bit of both. Um, it, at the start, I think it's just about trying to knock something out that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. But then really ultimately everybody's got benchmarks and they're trying to you know, imitate their benchmarks. Right. Wine is not normally associated with uh, politics. So 
unless you're drinking and talking at the same time. But you do have a, a, a distillery, a winery, winery, yep. winery in Myanmar. How is that shaping up given first the pandemic and then secondly uh, the coup and the takeover by the junta? Yeah, um, so to, to background that a little bit, I, I've sure. been making wine there for uh, in Myanmar for about three and a half, four years now. And um, uh, when when someone I know was involved with a group that, that purchased a, an established winery in the Shan Hills above in the lake, for people who, who know their um, geography in Myanmar. Beautiful place, lovely people, Shan people and, and Pa'ao people. And uh, I really enjoy working with them. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a God's given spot of the earth to make wine. It's a beautiful place. Right. Um, and uh, the impact, I guess, on, on myself has been quite profound in that, it, you know, I'm deeply moved by what everybody's going through there. Right? You are famous for that. A lot of people <laughs> say that about you've had two decades experience and you're a notoriously hard worker <laughs> in the industry. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, for me, it's, it's, I still talk to the winery every day. I'm still directing the, the mm. operations, if you like, in terms of overseeing quality control in as much as possible but there's but you need to be there you need to be tasting as well as just looking at figures so i just can't wait to get back there one day and hope that it happens sooner rather than later they can't wait to have me back there and making wine with them um and everybody that i know there that's involved involved with the winery is going through a really really tough time so it's uh it saddens me a lot right but i I, i'll always be associated with them as long as i can i'll always enjoy making wine with them um beautiful place to make wine and lovely people how, how has the pandemic upset uh the wine industry and um, not just wine producers in southeast asia which i'm sure folks outside of southeast asia might find a little strange but mm. it is here and it is happening how has the pandemic uh disrupted the industry and obviously uh the importing of wines from, you know from chile to australia to california yeah, look, it's obviously had an enormous impact um, in terms of the strain on the logistics. So it's, yep. it's it's much more expensive and much more difficult just to move wine around. Right. And for wineries, it's difficult to get equipment and, and get ingredients that you need. So, um, okay. It's uh, so it's put a lot of strain on just the production and the distribution in that way. And then for markets, obviously, the in most markets in Southeast Asia. The hospitality industry, mm-hmm. food and beverage industry, hotels, restaurants, bars, clubs, have tourism been, have been closed. Tourism's yeah. disappeared. So these are traditional strong channels for for wine sales. Yep. So they've been affected quite uh, dramatically. Having said that, there's been growth in other channels and unexpected ways. So online purchasing has exploded in some markets, right. um, and that's gone from a sort of speculative channel. To being a very viable channel to sell your wine these days and and that will stay now that won't disappear so some markets have done better than others australian wine i can tell you is uh seeing enormous growth in south korea mm-hmm. um, is that part of the uh um what do we do with this stock now that the chinese won't take it oh there's there's a lot of i mean there's not so much dumping because at some point you can't go any cheaper than what it costs mm-hmm. you and, and um you have to survive so there's a lot of wineries in australia under a lot of pressure mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of trading going on but that's not necessarily uh that, that's taking some market share from other countries it's not necessarily increasing the consumption of certain markets so right. people aren't drinking more wine just because there's some cheap stuff floating around so 
Right, but you're mentioning uh, the Australians in South Korea are doing quite well. Yeah, and it's not at the bottom end. It's at the at premium end and, and sort of newer producers and, and interesting cutting-edge kind of wines. So that's exciting for me to see stuff like right. that. The, the, these wines that you're mentioning, I think, niche markets, how is that affecting the big producers? I, if you look at the company records, it's uh, always interesting to see how many, you know, the big wine producers say uh, Orlando and how much property they own in in Australia and not just there obviously uh, right across the planet. Yeah well if Australia assets Asia Pacific if you look at Australia as a a model Mm. um, I always say the key to understanding Australian production is that there's only about five wineries that make about 85% of all the wine in Australia Mm -hmm. and then there's about 3,000 producers that make the other 15%. Now, so when we talk about embargoes and, and, and markets being blocked, such as mainland China for Australia, it's those big companies that are really hurting. And But they also have the resources to, to exploit other channels. So mm. um, one winery I know that, uh, you know, they've started producing in, in the USA, which they can quite legally export to China. They're mm. also looking at, um, or they've just announced that they're going to send bulk wine to China and bottle it up there with a joint venture. So okay. they're big enough and they have the resources to look at finding other ways to get around yeah. these things. Whereas the small guys, they were there and then they're locked out. So they, they need to find other markets. They need to um, find other ways to, to sell their wine. But if you're small enough, you know, you can look for these niches and, and usually do quite well. It's really the middle size, or what we call no man's land. You either need to be small enough to niche or big enough to adapt. Right. And you don't want to be in the middle because that's where the cash crunch is really hitting. So yeah, the middle-sized wineries are hurting, yeah. Imagine that the um, the distribution costs are extraordinary now. I mean, we simply don't have the uh, shipping we once did. Just time, too. You know, getting trying to plan to have... You know, the worst thing to happen is to run out of stock in the market, mm-hmm. um, particularly if you're on a lot of wine lists and with hotels and things, or you have sh- precious shelf space in, in, in wine shops. And all of a sudden, if you can't fill that slot, that will go to somebody else, and then you have to... Wait yep. until your turn comes to get it back again. So running out of stock is not what uh, importers and distributors want to do. But so planning for that now is extremely difficult with the long lead times with ships, booking ships, even with wineries getting, you know, as I say, getting equipment to produce wine on time for vintage and things like that is it's a very stressful time for wineries at the moment. About two or three years ago, I was writing a story about Penfolds mm-hmm. and uh, how there'd been a... A truck had been smashed up. The police had arrived and discovered that there were thousands of fake bottles of penfolds being shipped out to market. How big a threat are the counterfeits, the fakes, to the industry? It's an enormous problem and it costs millions of dollars to the industry every year. And you have um, constant innovation in packaging in particular Mm. to try and um, eliminate the problem. Um, so companies like Penfolds, they have very personalised bottles. Right. They have secret codes and chips and all sorts of things. How are they doing it? I mean, where do they get the wine from? Are they, you know, are they growing it? I mean, you, it's a it's it's a hell of an operation to sort of like grow your own grapes, make your own wine, and then yeah. bo- bottle it under another label. It's almost like why would you? Well, you got to what you got to look at there is so so if we say Penfolds or a lot of the Bordeaux producers, mm-hmm. the bigger houses then they produce wine that covers nearly every spectrum in the market, every step in the price point system. So 
you can have wine from you know five US dollars a bottle to 500 US dollars a bottle being made by the one company. Sure. So at a very base level, the simplest thing to do is take the $5 bottles. Right, and change the labels. And, uh, and, and relabel it, yeah. Right. But there are also much more sophisticated operations in places like mainland China where they're producing local wine, they're producing local bottles that are identical, and they're literally producing you know, something that's very hard to tell apart until you actually get it in your mouth. And even then, <laughs> if you're selling yeah. it to people that have not are not used to drinking $800 bottles of wine... They wouldn't know. Then they still don't know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a big problem. Um, you know, one of the first growths of Bordeaux, Chateau Lafitte, is one of the most famous wines in the world, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. And uh, there's more sales of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild in mainland China every year than they produce for the whole world every year. That must <laughs> concern them somewhat. Right, enormously, yeah. As I say, it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle. Right. Are the authorities doing enough? Are, um, they, are they interested? I mean, the region is notorious for its corruption, but at the same time, there are a lot of people out there trying to do the right thing. Look, the industry is spending a lot of time and resources policing itself. Mm-hmm. So I think what tends to happen is that um, it's really the industry itself that is finding the corruption and yep. then taking it to the police. Um, rather than specific inv- ongoing investigations. So um, the industry, you know, there are industry bodies, particularly when you have auction houses, like Hong Kong is now the largest secondary market for wine in the world, so it's got the biggest auction houses mm. for wine in the world, and people are paying phenomenal amounts of money for very rare old wines, so you have to have very strong policing within those organisations to make sure that they're not auctioning fakes. They, they can't af- that, that could ruin their business. So right. there's a lot of self-policing going on. And I, I, one would imagine that you know, going back to what you were talking about before in terms of uh, niche marketing, if you're selling a bottle of wine for... Oh, what, what's the record for a bottle of wine? Oh, good question. I, I, I got a feeling it's up around a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. So if you're going to spend that much money on a bottle of wine, the shipping costs wouldn't really bother you if you had to send a DHL. If, uh, you, know, if you can but, afford a bottle of uh, yeah. DRC for $150,000 or something, then <laughs> you're probably not worried about the, the price so much. But this is the end of the market that's sort of growing, I would imagine, and is kind of pandemic resistant in that you could buy it online, you know what you're getting. I mean, you'd have to have people, obviously, to verify it, and I would imagine the auction houses would do that. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, they, they cannot afford to sell fake material. That's the end of their business. The reputation's ruined. But we talk about the growth in that end of the market. It's, mm. For a lot of these places, it's a finite resource in that, you know, by law, you're only allowed to call yourself this wine if you come from this area. Yes. And you're only, you can only produce a certain amount of wine off that vineyard mm. per acre or per hectare. So you can't just go out and make more. So the only thing that gets... The, all the pressure is on the price. Right. And so the price just keeps going up and up and up. Okay, so in terms of international branding, I mean, we remember the stories long ago when uh, the Californians, the Chileans, uh, Australians were producing, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon or uh, all these sort of brands. We were calling them Burgundies and Chablis. Right, and and whether that all had to be abandoned and people had to develop their own marketing strategies. How is that kind of, is that replicating itself with Southeast Asian wines? I mean, how do you sell a wine from Myanmar that, you know, smells like, tastes like, looks like a Cab Sav, yep. but uh, you can't call it that? Well, there's kind of two questions in one. There's, I'll answer mm, them sure. separately if that's all right. So yeah. 
Firstly, you know, certainly when I started in the industry, you know, if, if it was a light-bodied red in Australia, it was called a red burgundy. Right. If it was a full-bodied red, it was called a claret, you know, good old English claret. And, uh, you know, if it was a light, crisp, dry white, it was called a Chablis. And if it was yeah. a bit more richer and had more maybe Chardonnay in it, fuller-bodied, it was called a white burgundy. And uh, we just didn't know what else to call our wines, basically. Sparkling wines, we called them champagnes. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days... Spumante. Yeah, <laughs> in those days, we didn't really export a lot of wine. Yep. Um, and it was all domestic consumption. And it was when we started to export a little bit of wine to, to, to England in particular. You know, the French came knocking and said, hey, we, we don't like you calling your wines after our places where we make wine. Right. Um, and, you know, and we have laws to protect them in, our, in, in France, and we'd like you to respect that. And, of course, I don't think... Australia and America and the other markets, the new world markets as we call them, I don't think they were too perturbed at first. But once it became a European trading block, yep, and then England was a very specific market for it was the largest importer of wine in the world. Um, and all of a sudden, if you were going to lock these countries, these new world producers out of those markets, that was going to have an impact. So we didn't care if France imported our wine or not. But once you England became part of the market, the equation. Mm-hmm we had to stop. Um, and it went to something called the GIC, the Geographical Indi- Indication Control E-Court, and okay. um, we had to change the name. We couldn't use those names anymore. Right. Um, we had to agree to not use those names, which I think was a great thing. In some ways, it was the biggest free kick that traditional Europe producers ever gave to the New World producers because everyone had to sit around and scratch their heads and say, what do we call our wine now? Yeah. And we started to name it Grape Variety by Grape Variety. So if it was made with Chardonnay, we call it a Chardonnay. If it was made with Cabernet Sauvignon, instead of calling it a Claret, we call it a Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Today, it's 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 clear that more people around the world buy wine by Grape Variety than right. by region. And and you can understand that when I say, well, if you say, well, this is apple juice, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. You kind of know what it's going to taste like, right? Right. So if you say this wine is a Cabernet Sauvignon, doesn't matter if it's from California or Australia or Chile or Argentina, you know it's pretty much going to taste like Cabernet. So you can buy with some confidence. So that's really helped new world wine penetrate markets around the world. Okay. And then the other side of the coin is, whereas if I said to you, hmm. how about we have a nice Chablis for lunch, what's Chablis taste like? What's it made with? A lot of people don't know that it's Chardonnay. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> so it's easier for people, particularly at entry level, and particularly in markets like Asia where people are just getting used to wine, yeah. to understand the code of the grape variety and buy wine that way. And that's where it's heading in yeah, Southeast Asia, absolutely. Lima, yeah. China. So much so that at, 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 at a certain level in France, they, they, they come up with a new wine title, Vente de Francais, where they can put the grape variety on the label, where once upon a time... At that lower entry level, that was illegal. You couldn't put the grape variety on the level. So they changed it mm-hmm. because of the market forces. Okay. So g- going forward a little bit, yeah, I mean, I'm asking this question of everybody. Uh, where does the industry go given the pandemic? Uh, no one thinks it's really over or that mm. it's going to disappear tomorrow and that the tourists are all going to come back. And that industry, where, where do you see it going? I think in terms of personal consumption, people are still drinking wine. People drink when they're happy, they drink when they're sad, they sure. drink when they're with friends, they drink when they're lonely or, or whatever. But So, you know, there's always going to be that market there. I think uh, with the, the emerging channels of, of people are drinking more at home, mm-hmm. they're drinking, they're buying more online, they're having wine delivered. And so it's 
the market has shifted and the channels to the consumer have shifted, but the market's still there. I know, for example, a company I do some work with in Australia, they were one of the, I think they were the largest independent wholesaler of wine to the on-premise market in Australia. So what's an on-premise market? So on-premise being you consume the wine on the Oh, premises. right, okay, yes. So like a restaurant. The, the pubs like and hotel. hotels. Yep. And, yep. So that market was basically wiped out for them. So, right. you know, and they were, there was, you know, there was, they were in panic for a while. It's like, we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to make it through this. So they had to completely change their channel strategy. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they approached all of the off-premise sellers, the wine marts, the, the supermarkets, the mm-hmm. wine retail shops, where you buy the wine and take it home. And they actually discovered that that's a much more, potentially much more uh, rich and, and profitable channel for them. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's all about volition, I think. If, if you're a bit of an old dinosaur and it takes mm. you a long time to turn around, you might not turn around fast enough. If you're lean and mean and hungry, you can adapt to markets. You've been in Cambodia for, what, 12 or 20 years, I think. Yeah, been um, in Asia 20 years and in Cambodia most of the last 12, yeah. Right, and over this over this period, we've seen a lot of free trade agreements signed. There's the RCEP deal that's coming about. They established the Asian Economic Community, which uh, I think the jury's out on whether that's successful or not. I mean, the pandemic has hit that one hard. But all these trade deals... ASEAN, APEC, RCEP, AEC, are they helping the industry? Is that re- Are they having the impact that these deals are supposed to have? Uh, they're always talked up, free trade, we're going to add 3% to GDP, our wine industries are going to boom off the back of it. Have they really helped? Uh, I think the short answer is yes, in that, um, you know, in a lot of Asia, it's the, 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 there's a lot of traders, a lot of speculators, and so when you see that the tax impact is minimal or disappeared, mm. um, it's definitely can focus attention on your product, on, on, on your industry, and that creates opportunity, definitely. Yeah, so I think it, um, is, it, it works quite well, particularly if there's been, there's been instances where there's been relatively high tariffs mm-hmm. on wine and it's come down significantly, and then people have turned their attention to it and it's worked quite well. Okay. Uh, what wines are you going to be buying this year? I mean, what's your personal taste and remember i'm a complete idiot when it comes to these <laughs> kinds of things so well, I, you know, be kind uh, well it's, it's it's not about being smart or being an idiot even what i say to people is look the best one you'll ever have in your life is the one that you enjoyed the most not the one that i wrote about or told you to have or someone else told you was a hundred point wine or whatever so as long as you enjoy it then it's good for you my role is more to look at what people are interested in and what they like to drink and and mm and point out the best examples. That's how I kind of look at my role in terms of my, my judging and my journalism. Yeah. But I personally drink, you know, I get samples all the time. I yeah, how much do you drink? Well, I, <laughs> probably a lot less than people think, but I professionally taste a lot of wine almost every day. Yeah. And um, I think my record was a wine show in Hong Kong about 20 odd years ago where I worked out that we tried over 400 wines a day for three days straight. Whoa. (laughs) And you still like them at the end? Well, but you're spitting it all out. Sure. um, There's only... I'm just wondering how much you can endure. At what point does it... Well, I knew these guys were... The first day of that show, I knew these guys were hardcore because we sat down and they ordered Peking Duck and opened a bottle of Pinot for lunch. Right. (laughs) After we'd taste 200 and something wines that morning. (laughs) After what, these guys are serious. And uh, and then at night, your agent wanted to take you out and you had to do dinners and stuff. And then... 
front up the next morning and do it all again. So it, it's, but at some point you work out that that's the work part. It's not, mm-hmm. it's enjoyable work, but it's hard work. And, um, and you have to take it, you know, somewhat seriously. It's not just, oh, great, I get to drink for a living. It's not like that at all. You know, making wine, so it's nothing for me to get to the, my office at the winery in the morning at 7.30 and the winemaker will have 40 samples lined up that are just a trial or maybe an acid trial. Right. For me to, to taste as soon as I get to work in the morning. Um, I always tell them to pick wines that go well with toothpaste when we do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's yeah. that side of it. And then yeah. personal drinking, I, I, you know, one of my kind of passions, if you like, is, is looking at the cuisine of Asia and, and looking at what wine mm-hmm. I think matches well with it and drinks well with it. And so I'm always tinkering, organising little events and dinners and things and trying to pair wine and food. How does a ordinary punter when uh, walking into a wine shop particularly in Southeast Asia decide which one to choose bear with me I mean the reason why I'm asking this is say Cambodia for instance it's a francophone country and over the years there's been a lot of excess French stock dumped in the yep. country I don't know if that's a, an inappropriate word but uh, everyone has stories about going into the local bottle shop and getting an absolute ripper of a wine for three bucks <laughs> or spending 25 or 30 bucks on something that was complete, uh, you know, not not very good. Yeah. I, I feel a little bit sorry for the average punter that walks into a wine shop trying to pick a bottle of wine because we almost try to make it difficult for them to, to choose with, mm. you know, you've got to have the right country, the right region, the right grape variety, the right vintage, the right wine for whatever you're eating, um, the right wine for whatever occasion. And then in Asia, there's, there's also a, a lot of thing about face where you don't want to be seen to put the wrong wine on the table with your mates. You've got to put the right wine on and impress everybody. So it's difficult. And, and really what it comes down to is getting good information from sources that you trust. So um, hopefully you find a wine shop where there's a really good kid works in there that's got good knowledge and can steer you in the right way. Or, you know, people often look for things like gold medals on wines or mm-hmm. they look for you know good scores from wine critics or a good write-up yep. you know uh, which is why i write about wine trying to steer people in the right direction i tend to write about wines that, that that really inspire me so if i have something that's really really good i feel compelled to write about it and then share that with people um, and hopefully that steers them in the right direction the number one reason people buy a bottle of wine that they've never bought before is they got to try it somewhere no. whether that's at a yep. friend's house or a wine tasting which is why the industry does so many tastings and events because we know that's the best way to get people to try to, to buy you wine um, but the second reason that they'll buy wine that they've never bought before is information from a source that they trust or recommendation from somewhere they trust so um, that's why we spend so many column inches on it also we got time we have also you know when I first came to Asia selling wine 30 odd years ago everybody said oh yeah but but you know I was carting bottles of Australian wine under my arm and all the locals would say to me, oh, but, but French wine's the best, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it, you, you couldn't get them to consider you in the same sentence. It was, it was a, a barrier. So I would just do what I call blind tastings. So you would just have four glasses of Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. And two might be from Australia, two might be from France, one might be from the US. And we just talk about the wines together. You know, I'd have the media there, some trade there, and we just talk about the wines together. And wouldn't be judging them as they were and um invariably and they were all good wines usually you know i didn't want to put i didn't want to sort of rig the the panel if you like yep so just all good wines people would talk about them we'd all talk about them together 
often because the new world wines are a bit more fruit forward and fruit driven um, and a bit where, whereas uh, a lot of the European or continental wines can be more about texture and tannin structure and and a little bit less fruit uh, obvious fruit so invariably the new world wines would be the ones that people in Asia would prefer 30 years ago and then we'd start to unveil what was what and you'd say that, well, that French wine's $50 and that one's $20 and that's my Australian wine that's $20 and all of a sudden they go oh okay now I need to consider them in the same bracket. In, in terms of turnover how has that changed over the years it must be colossal in terms of the sheer amount of money the industry's turning over now or pre-pandemic yep. as compared with when you first arrived with half a dozen bottles under your arm oh, in the whole region absolutely in terms of um so i can remember when um the wine winemakers federation of australia did a 20-year plan for itself in the mid 90s and i was somewhat involved in that and our ambition was in 20 years we wanted to be exporting over a billion dollars worth of wine um 2019 australia exported 1.2 billion dollars worth of wine to china alone Mm. <laughs> so it's um, it, the growth has been staggering, more than more than anyone predicted. Ah, on that happy note, Darren Gall, thanks for the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Always happy to talk about wine, and uh, always happy to share a good bottle with someone. Cheers. Thanks, Luke.